thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. I'm excited to share about restorative practices, and I know there's going to be a podcast along with this that outlines an article that colleagues and I published in the Journal of Youth Development. The goal of this short podcast is to introduce restorative practices. Since this will be a brief introduction, listeners can learn more about this work online if they're interested. The International Institute for Restorative Practices is the professional organization I have relied on to learn more about this work and to build a network. Their website is iirp.edu. Additionally, there is a growing research base related to restorative practices in schools and restorative justice in criminal justice systems. So restorative practices. Restorative practices aim to build community through positive relationships, and it posits that participatory learning and decision-making are the foundation of just communities. A foundational component of restorative practices is to acknowledge that conflict is natural and normal in human relationships. When handled effectively, conflict can be a source for strengthening relationships. It also recognizes that rule-breaking or violations of norms causes harm to relationships, and restoring positive relationships is the overall goal of accountability practices. This is in contrast to punitive approaches to rule-breaking, which often focus on punishment of offenders without considering the harm caused or the needs of the community. Therefore, restorative practices prioritizes recognizing and addressing conflicts that occur in relationships through a process that is inclusive of victims, offenders, and community stakeholders. The intentional focus on repairing harm is rooted in restorative justice, which originated in, in the literature in the 1970s as a reconciliation process for victims and offenders. Long before the academic focus on this work emerged, we know that indigenous cultures such as Native Americans and Maori people of New Zealand employed restorative approaches to address issues in their communities. The early success of this fieldwork in restorative practices has led to a growing area of social science that examines the ways we can strengthen community and relationships across a variety of contexts. Today, restorative justice is viewed as one component of a larger restorative practices movement. In the United States today, restorative practices are embraced as a way to address school discipline issues, which has led to a disproportionate number of minority students to be expelled from school. We often hear this described as the school to prison pipeline. Restorative practices does not eliminate punishments such as suspension, but it shifts the focus away from the punishment to consider the harm caused, the impact of the community, and the needs of all who were impacted by the harm. So remember that restorative practice emphasizes addressing harm caused to relationships through a fair and inclusive process. That concept applies to reactive decisions, such as doling out consequences for a fight at school, it can also apply to proactive decisions, such as rulemaking to ensure orderly processes in a school. Therefore, there are three principles of a fair process in restorative practices. The first is engagement, which requires authorities to involve individuals in decisions that directly affect them by listening to their views and considering their opinions. The second is explanation, 
This means that when authorities, authorities should explain the reasoning behind a decision to everyone who has been involved or affected by it. The third is expectation clarity, which suggests that decision makers should make sure that everyone clearly understands a decision and what is expected of them in the future. The assumption behind the fair process principle is that students are more likely to make positive changes to their behavior when authorities do things with them rather than to them. The most common example of a fair process in schools is a restorative conference. This conference is convened as a result of misconduct such as bullying, fighting, cheating, or any other serious rule violation that might occur in a school. The conference would include victims, offenders, representatives of victims and offenders, and other community stakeholders who were impacted. The conference facilitator follows a restorative script focusing on identifying the harm, examining why it occurred and how it could be prevented in the future, and determining how to restore the harm caused to relationships. These conferences result in consequences that consider the needs of victim, offender, and the community. I should emphasize that restorative practices cut across all school contexts and are not limited to specific responses to conflicts. For example, circle processes are the most common restorative practice. Circles are a versatile practice that can be used proactively to build relationships or reactively to address harm to relationships. In restorative schools, circles are routinely practiced as a way to provide a safe space for youth to speak and listen to one another. Some of the ways circles have been used in classroom settings to resolve, include to resolve conflicts, promote healing, provide support, consensus decision-making, information exchange, or relationship building. Research on restorative practices suggests that when implemented with a high level of fidelity, the practices encourage free expression of emotion, maximize positive effect, and minimize negative effect. As a result, some school districts in the United States have seen reduced suspension rates, less behavioral referrals, and improved school climates. The research also suggests that restorative practices work best when its values are integrated holistically across the school context. So as you may have noted by now, restorative practices align well with several conceptual frameworks. For example, it is largely consistent with movements related to positive youth development, social and emotional learning, or the positive behavior intervention system. What is notably absent from these approaches is that restorative practices is grounded in addressing harm to relationships and embracing conflict as normal and inherent to human relationships. Several scholars and practitioners have taken restorative practice as kind of and kind of mapped it on to other models, such as those I mentioned. This is certainly in alignment with the Hellison teaching personal and social responsibility model, as well as the sport for peace curriculum developed by Kathy Ennis and colleagues. In conclusion, um, restorative practices are about building relationships in healthy communities. It values strategies that are proactive to promote positive relationships. And beyond that, it acknowledges that conflict happens in relationships. And when handled effectively, it can be a source for strengthening relationships. Finally, when serious violations to relationships do occur, 
it recognizes the importance of including victims, offenders, and communities into a fair process of resolving conflicts. More work is needed to understand the role of physical education in sports as it relates to restorative practice. I certainly believe there are unique types of conflicts that occur in sports and problem-solving opportunities that can be leveraged to help youth think about how to resolve challenges in a restorative manner. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate that. Um, again, for the listeners, the website is iirp.edu, and it's a great resource for professional development or just to uh, get some materials to help you out if this is something that you're interested in. So this podcast coincides with a podcast that we uh, launched, episode 10, that has Dr. Hemphill talking about restorative practice in uh, physical education settings and in sports settings. So thanks all for listening. Thank you.